I want to uh, give you a little insight into uh, my life at home. So my wife and I, we, uh, we love hosting people. We love having people over in whatever way we can. And one of the little rifts that, that comes up is that um, my wife is a fairly clean, fairly organized person, and I am uh, I'm not, okay? That's probably the easiest way to say it. Now, here, here is a little bit of a, a problem in this mix of things, is that if you don't know me, I have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old in our house. And so our life and our house is in a perpetual state of chaos. It's always crazy. Our house is always a disaster that always needs to be cleaned up. Now, here's the deal with cleaning. Now, tell me if, if this is true in your house or not. That there, are, there are really two ways to clean, right? Uh, and in our house, there's Carrie's way, and then there's Jared's way. And, and for Carrie... See, everything has a place, and everything uh, should fit nicely in some place. And for our house, since we have about 7,000 toys in our house, all of our toys somehow have a place. And so upstairs, uh, the, upstairs there's the puzzles and the books and these toys. And on the main floor, there's, um, there's this uh, rotating group of toys that sits in the living room that every month, to keep them fresh, we'll put a new batch of toys out there, and this is just kind of how it works. And then in the basement... There's, uh, there's the, the kitchen and food toys that go in the kitchen corner. And then there's the Legos that go in their little box. And there's the baby toys that go in the baby bin. And uh, there's the electronic toys and the education toys that go in another bin. And it goes on and on. And if you put everything just right, it all fits together like a perfect puzzle. So Carrie says. I don't know. We'll see. But so I have another way of cleaning. Um. So usually when people come over, uh, we have about 20 minutes before people come over. Our house is a disaster. We've got to do something about it. And so do you think I'm going to put the baby toys in the baby bin? I'm not going to put them there because I have a perfectly good closet in our office that has a door on it that I can just throw stuff on top of the towels and I can close the door there. Or our bedroom has a door as well. And so why wouldn't I just take the Legos and the toy dinosaurs and the army guys and throw them all in my bed? And if I have to sleep on a couple Legos tonight, so be it. Can I get an amen to this style of cleaning? Anyone okay with that? You see, my method of cleaning is not technically cleaning. It's more so, oh no, we're coming over. I can't look like a slob. I've got to preserve my image and make people think that I've got it somewhat together, so I better figure something out quick, right? My version of cleaning doesn't get rid of the mess. It just moves the mess to a less visible area. And as we look at this passage today, we're going to find out that these Pharisees were experts at this Jared cleaning, this idea of moving their mess to a less visible area. See, these Pharisees, they recognized that, that something was wrong with them. They recognized that there was a problem and that they were unclean or unpresentable in some way to God. And so they wanted to solve it. And so the way that they thought that they could solve it is by becoming experts at cleaning up the outside, at cleaning up their exterior, at putting an appearance out there so they would appear to be cleaned up. And I think as we find out, as we enter into this story, we're going to find that we have a tendency to do the same thing. Now, I believe that a lot of us have come up with these Jared cleaning methods in our lives in order for us to 
to feel good about ourselves. And I just want to say to you right here, as someone who does this as I clean my house, but someone who also has a tendency to do this in life, it has many times made me miserable. Like, I am uh, a lot of times obsessed with the, outs- with the idea of looking good on the outside, with keeping up appearances so people think I have it all together, with impressing people, with trying to prove myself over and over and over, and it plagues me on a daily basis. And I think that there's probably quite a few of you out there that it also may be plaguing. So someone who has battled this thought for this, this idea for years and years, I just want to say, if you don't know this, man, it's tiring to try to do this, to try to do what the Pharisees were doing, to try to k- clean up the outside. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's stressful. It's anxiety-inducing. And it, sometimes it will turn me toward pride and judgmentalism. Other times it will turn me toward, uh, it'll, it'll turn me toward insecurity. But here's probably the biggest deal is that it has me running away from Jesus, not toward him. It has me relying on myself and not actually relying on him. <clears throat> so deep in the hearts of all of us, we, I, I believe that we know that something isn't quite right. That there is an unclean something inside of us, and we are desperate to do whatever it takes to become clean. If you don't believe me, uh, let me just ask you a couple questions. First of all, Why do many of us work so tirelessly at work to try to achieve a a goal or to accomplish something or to get a promotion? And, And we work and we work, and then when we finally accomplish that, do we stop? No, we keep working and keep working tirelessly and tirelessly. And I think it's because we're trying to earn something. For others of you, why are you completely terrified of disappointing people? Like, why do you have no boundaries? Why can't you say no to anyone? You say yes to everything all the time. You even change yourself, change your, your routine, change your practices so that you will be uh, acceptable and not disappoint other people. I think it's because we're trying to earn something. For others of you, why are you so scared of commitment? Or why are you scared to, to let others be close to you, to, to see you for who you truly are, to let others know you and, and to be known? I think it's because we're trying to hide something. I think these are all quests in trying to, to fix that, that internal problem that we feel. And, and the reality is, is that we can keep running on this treadmill of, of this of, of this external appearance, improvements, or we can rest in Jesus. This is our choice before us this morning. We can keep trying to build up our own resume, or we can trust in the resume of Jesus. We can keep trying to, to keep up our lives by cleaning up our lives like I clean my house, or we can let Jesus build something brand new. That is the options. Those are the options that are in front of us. And in this passage today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to diagnose our true problem. The reason that we feel that way, and he's going to show us that there is another way to fix our problem. And so the outline that we're going to follow this morning, it's going to go like this. We're going to talk about masking the problem or covering this problem. 
then we're going to talk about identifying the true problem, and then we're going to talk about fixing the problem. So that's what we're going to talk about from Mark chapter 7, starting in verse verse 14. And so we're going to start there and look at masking the problem. And Jesus here is is addressing these Pharisees here. So let's read, starting in verse 14, and see what he says to these Pharisees and Jews. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, this section is closely, def- uh, closely tied excuse me, to the passage that's right before this, to the paragraph that's right before this. And, and Jesus had this altercation with the Pharisees. And what had happened is there's a group of Pharisees, Jewish leaders, that had come down from Jerusalem and they come out seeking Jesus and his disciples. Not because they want to hear him or pat him on the back, but because they're trying to shut him down. And their idea is, is they wanted to call Jesus out on the fact that his disciples were not, or were doing a poor job of the religious practices of the day. And so when they come to, to shut him down, what they said, which if you look up in your Bible just a little bit further, up in verse 5, is this is the, kind of the accusation or the question they ask. They say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This passage that we're studying today is essentially a response to that question. This kind of insult that these disciples weren't doing what they were supposed to do, like the Pharisees had been doing. So, now... This defiled hands thing, it can be kind of confusing. So let me give you a little background on this. So in the Old Testament, the first few books, in Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll find the law of God, the, the law that these Pharisees would have been thinking about. And so God gave his people a law, and in that law you'll find the Ten Commandments, which most of you are probably familiar with, but also on top of that there's all sorts of other laws. And there's a lot of these laws that have to do with being clean or unclean, and these laws about cleansing. And so... Just to give you a little better idea, so um, people in those days, they would be considered unclean if you uh, were around a dead body, or if you touched mildew, you'd be considered unclean, or if you ate pork, you'd be considered unclean. Now, this law that God gave them, it proclaimed to these people loud and clear something that was very true about their situation, and that was that God was perfect, that he was holy, and that he was clean, and and that the Israelites most definitely were not. They were far from it. And so it wasn't just an unclean thing externally that they needed to wash off, but this actually went to the depths of their heart. Their hearts were actually unclean. And so what was the deal with these cleansing laws? Like, why why did they have these? Well, um, they may seem kind of old. They may seem a little archaic. You don't know how they relate. But I think that there are some modern parallels that might help us understand this a little better. I heard Tim Keller, uh, the pastor Tim Keller, explain it this way. He said, um, so he said something like, many of you have fasted before, right? And, and in fasting, what you do is you stop eating, and it's a physical thing, but it has a spiritual purpose. As you fast, you have physical hunger, and that points you to a greater spiritual hunger, and it's supposed to be kind of a spiritual sharpening, right? Another example, sometimes we, we kneel, uh, when we pray. And the idea behind kneeling is, is we assume a physical posture, 
right, that is uh, supposed to be a humbling posture to point to the fact that we are spiritually and mentally humbled before God. So this physical leads to the spiritual. Now, so for these Jews, when they were called to be clean, what they needed to do is they needed to wash themselves and be clean before they would come to the temple to worship with the people. In this long list of cleansing laws was a physical act that, yes, it did clean the outside of them. In some ways, they were physically clean, but it also pointed to the fact in their minds that in order to approach God, to be around this Almighty God, that they needed to be completely and utterly cleaned, cleansed, and perfect. And ultimately, the fact that they were also an utterly broken people and they needed cleansing by God himself. It wasn't going to happen through just maybe washing their hands, but they needed God to change and clean their actual hearts. Now, the Pharisees, they knew what these laws were, but they kind of got, they kind of lost God's intent for these laws. What started out as a desire to love God through obeying these laws then became just a quest to see how good they could actually observe the laws. And when they did good, they felt good about themselves. Now, what they started doing is they took the law, I believe there were 613 commandments in the law, and and they kind of, they tried to uh, protect themselves against breaking the law by putting a fence around this law, figuratively, but by creating more rules so they wouldn't even get close to breaking the law. So get this. So um, one of the things uh, that God commanded them to do was not or to rest on the Sabbath. So here's a couple Sabbath rules that they came up with in order to safeguard themselves against it. So on the Sabbath day, they came up with a rule that said you are not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because if you looked in the mirror, you might see that you had a gray hair and therefore be tempted to pluck it out of your head. And if you did that, you would be doing work on the Sabbath. Okay? How about another example? So uh, they uh, outlawed people from wearing false teeth because if you wore those teeth and they weren't securely attached, I don't really know that world, so I don't really know how that works, but if your teeth fell out, you would be tempted to pick them up and put them back in your mouth or wash them and then put them back in your mouth and that would be doing work on the Sabbath. They said that, yes, you could, here's another one. They said that, yes, you could spit, but you had to be very careful when you would spit because if all of a sudden you spit on the ground, on the dirt, and your sandal stepped on this and scuffed this spit into the dirt, you might be cultivating the soil, thereby doing agricultural work on the Sabbath. You're starting to understand that these guys were obsessed. Maybe obsessive compulsive would be a little bit better term for that. But if they carried out these external duties, they thought that they would be okay. It was kind of an outside-in cleansing, not an inside-out cleansing. Now, Jesus, he saw the utter danger in this. He saw that these guys were relying on their rule-keeping to feel good about themselves. And of course, he knew that at the core of his message, at the core of the gospel message, was not if you do good enough, If you keep the rules good enough, then you will be acceptable by God. But it's quite the opposite. Jesus' gospel message is that that we all come to the table broken. We all come to the table not being able to be good enough for God. And so we need Jesus to save us, to forgive us, to do something for us. 
And so Jesus, in this day, knowing his Pharisees would have an onslaught toward his disciples and knowing that he was one day going to have to pass off his ministry to these disciples, he knew that he had to protect his disciples from any sort of this thinking. And so he wanted to clarify this. So in the very next verses, he essentially says the exact same thing to his disciples, but he takes them away and because he needs to reiterate this message. He takes them into a home and he basically says the exact same thing once again to them. In verse 18, he says, then are you, disciples, also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? He repeats, disciples, do not be fooled by this. It is not an outside thing that is your problem. What you do and what you don't do is not your problem. What you eat and what you don't eat is not your problem. Whether you eat something clean or you don't eat something clean, that is not your problem. It doesn't get to the root of what's going on. It just masks your problem. You see, what the Pharisees did and what Jesus is speaking sharply against and what a lot of us have the tendency to do is to build up our own resume. To be able to try to to do enough good things to feel good about ourselves. And Dr. Thomas Constable, who is a, a Bible prof, he said this about the Jews in this day. He said, The Jew was very apt to regard the law as a series of detached injunctions or orders. <clears throat> to keep one of these orders was to gain credit. To break one was to incur debt. Therefore, a man could add up the ones he kept and subtract the ones he broke, and then emerge with either a credit or a debit balance before God. Now, for us, I think we feel this insufficiency before God, and we know that we're not good enough, and so we try to address this problem in the same way the Pharisees did, by building a resume, by keeping a tally of our good works to figure out how good we're doing. And some of us do this through religious means or spiritual means. And some of, this, some of us do this through irreligious means. Let me tell you what I mean. Let me explain this. So for religious resume building, it kind of goes like this. Hey, I got up and went to church today. That's a plus one for me, right? Or I went to Citigroup last week. That's plus one for me. I read my Bible a couple times last week. That's another plus one. Uh, oh, you know what? I actually read my Bible four times this week. That's probably plus two for me, right? And you keep on going. You say, oh, I, got, uh, I shared my faith with my coworker. That's a pretty big deal. That's probably plus three for me. My coworker actually trusted in Jesus. That's like plus ten. This morning, I dropped my toaster on my toe, and I didn't say a cuss word. That's probably worth plus three, right? I'm, I'm being holy to God. Or, or I'm discipling someone. That's plus one. I have a job in ministry. That's plus one. And we rely on these things, these religious things, to try to build ourselves up and feel good about ourselves. But they're external, and it's not the problem. So some of you are like, wait a minute. I don't do that religious stuff. I'm not a religious nerd like that. Uh, but a lot of us have irreligious ways to do this too. When it comes to your work, you're like, I have a good job. That's a plus one. I, I, I got promoted and now I supervise people. That's plus one. I, 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 uh, I have a six-figure job. I'm getting paid pretty well. That's plus one. You do it in the social realm. That maybe you're finally a part of that crowd, the, the cool crowd. And so now you're a part of that group that you're like, oh, that's 
I feel pretty good about myself. That's plus one. Or you're posting stuff on Instagram and you're getting like 50 or 70 likes. Hey, that's worth something. That's plus one. Or maybe you finally have that, that girl that's kind of popular, kind of famous, and she, she's following you on Instagram and she's liking what you're saying and commenting on what you're posting. That's plus one for me, right? Or you can do this in, in ways of athletics. You're like, hey, I started varsity. That's plus one. Hey, I got a scholarship to go play college athletics. That's plus one for me. Or I go to the gym and I'm stronger than those people, and I got more ripped, defined abs than those people, that's a plus one for me, right? You can do this with parenting, too. Hey, I don't send my kids to public school. I homeschool them. That's, that's plus one for me. Or my kids are way more well-behaved in public than those kids are, and so I could go on and on and on. I'm going to tell you something. This external resume building, this is what I have been prone to my entire life. And that I have tried this over and over and over, and it will make you miserable if you let yourself go down this road. For me, I started off off trying to build my resume on being good at basketball. And it was okay in junior high when I was better than everyone else, but then when I got into college and out of college, I became old and out of shape, and I wasn't good at basketball anymore, and it just didn't work. Or other times I've tried to build my, my resume on, on being good at, uh, at, at ministry success. And the problem with that is you always run into someone who has a bigger church, a better story, more conversions. They're a better preacher. They have a better education. They're smarter than me. It just doesn't work. I tried to build off uh, my resume off my personality and, and my humor, but yet sometimes I get into big crowds and I clam up and then the attention goes to someone else and I feel inferior. Or I tell a joke up here and you guys don't laugh at me and I think I must not be that funny. Thank you for laughing. It makes me feel better. I'm not building my resume on that though. Anyway, I've tried to do it with spiritual disciplines but then I found out that, man, I don't get up as early as that guy to read his Bible. I don't pray as much as them. And it's failure after failure after failure. And all of this is masking the real problem. So my question is, what are you building your resume on? What is the system that you have created in order to achieve something to feel okay about yourself? And maybe the most important question is this. Is it actually working for you? See, Jesus very clearly says that we've got deeper problems, and he says that I've got a deeper solution. So we mask our problems, and so in the next section, Jesus identifies our real problems. So I want you to look with me in verse 20. Jesus gets real here for a second, and he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus goes on to say to his disciples that what's, what you're doing on the outside is really the least of your worries. And he addresses every single one of them. He addresses all the disciples, all the Pharisees, He addresses all of you. He addresses me when he says that out of your heart comes the real problem. That is the issue. 
I think we've probably all recognized this before, whether we've said it out loud or not. You look at this list, like we've done these things. Wickedness, evil thoughts, envy, slander, sexual immorality, deceit, coveting. And the problem is, we're not exactly one-time offenders to these, right? We've done it over and over and over again, and it's happened a lot. Our hearts are not okay. We are unclean, and it's serious. So when Carrie and I, when we moved back to, uh, when we moved back to Omaha in 2012, um, we came back to do college ministry at Christ Community. I said before that we like hosting, and so we had a lot of college students over, and I still remember the first time that we had um, we had our first crew of college students over just a couple weeks after we'd moved back. Uh, it was the summer or fall of 2012, and I don't know if many of you have a great memory, but that summer was the summer we had this incredible drought. Like, it was so dry through the summer and the fall. All of my grass was dead and crunchy and ugly, whatever. And so, what happened on this specific night when we invited people over, uh, we had just moved into this rental house. These college students were over hanging out, and uh, I got this idea because we just moved. Our, we had a bunch of moving boxes, these big boxes that were in my garage, and um, I was, like, sick of having them there. And like you've already kind of noticed, I'm kind of lazy. And so I was like, I don't want to, like, figure out how to get rid of these things. I want to, uh, how about I just burn them? Wouldn't that be a good idea? And so there's a couple of these small-town adventurous Nebraska dudes who were over at our house. And I'm like, hey guys, uh, you guys want to go burn some back boxes in my backyard, in my fire pit? And they're like, oh yeah, let's do it. I knew I'd get a yes on that one. And so I took the first box. It was like three and a half feet tall, uh, pretty big. It was stuffed with paper, very flammable. I took it into the backyard, put it in the middle of my backyard on the crunchy grass. And uh, I hadn't moved the fire pit over yet. Okay, I hadn't moved it over yet because we were going to obviously burn the boxes in the fire pit, right? That's what you do. I handed them the lighter and said, hey, I'm going to go grab some more boxes. Uh, Why don't you start on this first one? And so I go, walk over to the garage, and I come back a couple minutes later, and this box was on fire in the middle of my backyard. And the flames were slowly starting to come out out the, the side of the box. And I thought, oh, this probably isn't good. And literally within 20 seconds, these flames were about 12 feet high. And then I thought, this is really not good. And I saw all of my possessions, everything that I had, I saw the whole neighborhood. I'm like, this, this might all go down in flames. And we had just moved in. And so I didn't know if we were, there was a hose in the backyard. I didn't even know if there was a water spigot to plug anything in in the backyard. And so I'm freaking out. There's burning pieces of cardboard that are flying into my neighbor's yards. There's other pieces of cardboard that are flying onto the grass that are starting new fires. And I'm just picking up dirt and throwing it at the fire because I don't have any water trying to figure this thing out. And So we're like sweating, panicking, trying to figure it out. And after a few minutes, luckily in the dark, one of these college students found a hose in my backyard, grabbed this thing, and like a true firefighter, started spraying all these fires, all these things down while we're stomping on the other parts of the grass that were on fire. And it took, I don't remember, maybe 10, 15 minutes to get this fire to go out. And at that point, um, after our life flashed before our eyes, we were like sweating and panicky. And and it kind of had that shaking thing going on when you almost get in a car accident and you're like all nervous. And we go inside where these girls had been making dessert for the last 20 minutes. And we go inside and they're like, hey guys, what's up? And we're like, no, uh uh-uh. 
And, and they're like, what's wrong with you guys? And we're like, oh, no, don't ask. And, and they, they're like, okay, wh- why are you looking at us like that? And so after a while, I, I mustered up the strength to explain the fact that we almost burnt down the neighborhood and the house, and we all almost died in that moment. And as I think about the complete difference between the girl's mindset and my mindset, I think this story paints a picture of our approach to sin. That we are many times like these girls who are inside worrying about what kind of dessert we're making and what we can do on our own. And meanwhile, there is something that is real and life-threatening and huge that is upon us, that is affecting us in every way, and it's threatening to take over our very lives, except for it's not out, outside of us. It's actually inside of us. And I think that so many times that, that we don't understand or don't acknowledge or maybe ignore the fact that there is this all-consuming, life-threatening, heaven and hell in the balance kind of thing that exists inside our very own hearts. Our hearts are dark, and they need a complete overhaul. They need something to completely change them. Providence. We don't need to build a resume. We need a new heart. We don't need external cleansing. We need heart cleansing. Our problem is our sinful hearts, and that's what makes us feel unclean. And Jesus in this section implies a few things. One is that that all of our resumes are, are not good enough. They're riddled with red ink. They've got check marks all over them. They're not good enough because our hearts are cold and we can't do anything about this. But later in the book of Mark, Jesus would do something about this problem. He addressed our uncleanness by getting rid of it on the cross. One of my favorite verses in the whole entire Bible is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And in this verse, it says, God made him, Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus told his disciples that out of the heart of every man comes all of this evil, he knew that there was one exception, and that was him. That was his own heart, was perfect, was clean. That every thought, every deed, everything that he had ever done, he was completely flawless and sinless. And for centuries, these Israelites had tried to clean themselves up. And for years and years, you and I, we have tried to clean ourselves up, realizing that it doesn't work, that we can't do it. But there is one who can do it. There is one who was clean for us. You see, in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that Jesus became our sin and that we took on his perfection. Martin Luther referred to this as the great exchange. That when Jesus went to the cross, he took his resume, his perfection, every perfect deed and act that he has ever done. He took his resume, and then he grabbed our resume, the one that's stained with all the red ink, the one that's filled with all of our uh, evil thoughts and wickedness and foolishness and, and sexual immorality and greed and, and, 
and, and all our coveting and all of that and all our self-righteous deeds. And when he went to the cross, he said, here, you take mine and I'll take yours. And he went to the cross. All of our uncleanness was put on him. And he suffered the penalty of death on our behalf while we received his perfect righteousness. His perfect cleansing. We received his perfect resume, the great exchange. This is the cleanness that the Old Testament Israelites were longing for. This is the cleaning or the cleansing that we have all been longing for. You know what that means for us? For Christians in the room, it means that resume building is over. That you're free from that treadmill. You don't have to try to run the treadmill of Christian performance anymore. Remember that when you're trying to prove yourself and you're trying to impress other people, that that battle has actually already been won on the cross. Jesus has already accomplished that for you. He has already done that. And the problem that we are consistently trying to solve on our own, it's actually a heart problem, and there's only one person that can fix our heart problem. It's the one who can give us a new heart, and that's Jesus. And fortunate for us, in his grace, he does give us a new heart, and he promises to change us and, and, and transform us Now for us, the call is to stop admiring our faulty work and start admiring Jesus' perfect work. Could we do this, Providence? Could we start admiring the perfect work of Christ and not living by the rules but living for him? Now, if you're not a Christian in the room I just want to say, man, this offer of the great exchange, it is open to you today. And whether you, you come in here and, and maybe there's some things that, that maybe you feel, feel some guilt and shame for, or maybe it's the, some things that you've done that you're not proud of, things that keep you up at night, this great exchange offer is available to you that, that God offers perfect forgiveness in Jesus And the treadmill of life, the thing that we're all running on, and this exhausting race to prove yourself and impress others, it can be over. Jesus is offering to to transform you completely from the inside out, to give you his perfection for your imperfection, to take you in your uncleanness and give you cleanness. And, And so his invitation today is to come to him, not with accolades and accomplishments, but to come to him empty-handed and say, Jesus, I'm unclean and I need clean. Jesus, I'm not perfect and I want your perfection. Jesus, I need someone to forgive me. I need someone to save me. Could you do that for me? I trust in you, not trust in me. And if you've recently become a Christian or you're considering uh, right now whether God is calling you to himself in Jesus, uh, I want to reiterate the words that Andrew said earlier, that, that we're having a baptism service this next week, and would you consider getting baptized? 
What we do in baptism, as Andrew said, is not some strange ritual act where we just dunk people under the water because it's kind of fun, but it's symbolic of something that's happening inside. And when we put people under the water, it's a symbol of dying to our old self, our old sins, all of our, our, our evil thoughts and all the things that we're listening in these verses, and those are washed clean. And when we come up out of the water, it's symbolic of being raised to life, Jesus, just like Jesus in his resurrection raised to new life. And when you raise up out of the water, we are celebrating and symbolizing the fact that you have been given a clean slate. And when God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And you can celebrate that cleanness with us. And so if you are considering, I would love for you to come talk to me, come talk to Andrew, because we would love to talk you through uh, celebrating getting baptized next week. Also, wherever we are, whether we are a Christian or not, our hearts are, as the song said, are prone to wander. We are prone to go back to this resume building. And the call from this passage today is to know the problem and not try to fix it on our own, not admire our own work, but admire the work of Christ. Let's be a church that admires and embraces the cleanness that comes from Jesus. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for this message, this gospel message that you give to us that proclaims something that is not exhausting and tiring news, but it's completely good news. It's the best news that could come for us. God, I pray that as we are people that goes out into our families and our work life and our neighborhoods, there are going to be so many things pulling at our hearts, and we are going to be prone to going back to our old ways of trying to prove ourselves. But Jesus, in those moments, would you remind us that you have already won this battle, God, that we are clean in your sight, and now you invite us to joyfully follow you, not out of duty to the rules, but because we love you and we want to flourish with you. Jesus, we are completely reliant on you. And as we go from here, God, I pray that you would lead us and guide us and that you would give us the faith to follow you and embrace not our work, but embrace your work. Jesus, let us not be a people obsessed with outside-in cleansing, but let us embrace your inside-out cleansing. God, as we take communion and as we worship you, may our hearts jump and leap for joy at this cleaning work that you've done in us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.